I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Dan Diaz. He is the husband of Brittany Menard. Today, three years ago, his wife made the choice to end her life due to a terminal illness with the help of Oregon's Death with Dignity Act. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. First of all, thank you so much for joining us today. I really do appreciate your time. I know you're traveling. Absolutely. Your wife uh, made national headlines of her choice. Um, and I, when I look at her picture, and I still have the People magazine in my office, um, when I look at the picture, I often think about you and how the two of you met. And so I thought I would, would start with, how did you and Brittany cross in your life? Uh, so Brittany had just finished school at uh, UC Berkeley. We were both um, living in Oakland at the time. Um, we started dating, um, spending more and more time together. It didn't take too long for us to decide that we were a couple, um, boyfriend and girlfriend. And um, yeah, we, we, I'd spend time at her place. She was at mine and we'd go on weekend trips to, to wine country, Northern California. Um, we took a trip to New York to visit my brother. Uh, I don't, it was one of those things, one of those relationships where it was just, it was just easy. We were falling in love and it was something that, um, we found one another and, um, that, that connection was just there. Um, so, well, you yeah. wed in 2012 in wine country. Um, that the pictures that I've seen are absolutely astonishing. They're just beautiful. Tell me, tell me about that day. That day, to me, it, it, of course, one of the fond memories that I have, as far as those moments, um, the that whole day, Brittany put so much effort into the planning. Um, all the details of our wedding. Um, she took on a big portion of that. Uh, and I mean, I was busy working. We had bought a house. We're settling into our lives together. Um, and Brittany was working on, we bought our house in, in June of 2012. We were married September 29th. So there was a lot going on during that time, but the day was great. Um, the location was this bed and breakfast. Um, guests had come in from you know far and near, and everyone just said that it was such a nice celebration. Uh, the weather cooperated, which is always a bonus. Um, but yeah, I, I guess those photos that you've seen it it actually it accurately captured. There was just a lot of happiness all around. I mean, of, of course, Brittany and I um, being the primary source of that joy, but. Just everyone that was there, um, about a hundred guests, so it wasn't a huge wedding, um, but it was, yeah, it was just a great day all around. So, so special. It was a bed and breakfast that Brittany and I had been to. Actually, it was one of the first trips that weekend trips that her and I ever took was to that location. And um, Beltane Ranch was the is the name of the place. And and when Brittany, when I proposed to Brittany and we decided that we would be getting married. The first place that came to mind is we're going back to Beltane Ranch to get married. So, Well, you guys look very much in love in those pictures, um, like a fairy tale. So less than a year after you were married, though, Brittany started having horrible headaches. Um, did, you, did you know something was wrong at that point? So at first, those headaches, they'd wake her up in the middle of the night. She'd, she'd get sick. She'd be unable to go back to sleep. And so we were thinking all kinds of, you know, is this, is this allergy related? Is, is it something to do with, you know, we're, we're looking at all different contributing factors or, or potential contributing factors. Was it, um, for a while she thought maybe she was getting headaches from drinking red wine, uh, you know, everything, we, we were trying everything. 
But she did eventually go to see a uh, specialist after just a couple of months of those headaches. And that that uh, physician prescribed her, um, uh, gave her a prescription for migraines. That's what um, he figured that they were. He did not order a CT scan or anything at that time. Um, and oddly enough, or coincidentally enough, the, my, the, the headaches seemed to subside for a few months. Um, so the, you know, we figured, okay, maybe that's we're we're in the clear now. Um, unfortunately by the end of that year in 2013, the, the headaches were coming back and they were getting, they were getting worse. Um, so yeah, at that point we started thinking, okay, you know, something is wrong and, and, and how, what can we do to fix this? Because these were headaches that were putting her in bed. These are not normal headaches. These, I mean, and, you know, seem like migraines because I've seen migraines be, you know, detrimental to people living their lives, but they continued even after being treated. So when, what was that day like when you went, when she and you, I believe, went back to the physician to say something and it's, it's not helping anymore. This medication's not helping something. We feel like something else is going on. Well, so by the end of that year in 2013, when those headaches were back with the intensity that they were, and this was around the holidays, uh, so, um, you know, November, December, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so we were partially thinking that it was due just to the stress um, and, you know, heightened activity, not sleeping as much. So the fact that the headaches were there, logically, we could think, well, maybe that's these migraines are coming back just because of all the activity. Um, but when we actually had to go to the emergency room and that was New Year's Eve, um, that was the first time that it was the, uh, that the physician ordered a CT scan. And then that is when, um, we discovered for the first time that, um, there was an actual reason for the headaches um, and are you saying New Year's Eve? I mean, Christmas Eve, you found the sound New Year's Eve. <clears throat> so New Year's Eve. Yes. Brittany and I, um, after the Christmas holidays that year, 2013, Brittany had planned actually it was the gift that she had kind of come up with for the two of us that we would go away for New Year's Eve back up to, um, Healdsburg wine country. And we were on December 31st, we had, um, um, gone out to lunch that day. And that evening, um, Brittany had planned, it was this great dinner. It was like this six or seven course meal that was at this one restaurant with wine pairings and the whole thing. And, um, on the December 31st, we went to lunch and, and sh- the, the intensity of the light, um, in the restaurant, uh, the sunshine, it, it was all these things that we figured was were triggering a migraine, um, but um, in hindsight, looking back, I recognized that that was when she suffered actually her first seizure. It was a mild seizure, but um, we went back to the hotel. Um, she started throwing up. You know, out came lunch, and and for the next couple of hours, getting sick. And it was at that point that I said, sweetie, we, we have to, we got to go to the emergency room. Something's, you know, something's just not right. So, um, so yes, New Year's Eve, December 31st, we're at the, in the emergency room at this small Healdsburg hospital and that physician ordered a CT scan and that, uh, his exact words were that he sees a shadow. He says, Dan, there's a shadow here. You need an MRI. She needs attention right away. And so that's when we discovered the tumor. When, at that moment, um, what were you and her thinking upon that diagnosis that there's, she has a, a large shadow, a large possibly mass in, uh, on her brain? For me, I, I just, <clears throat> I look back at that moment as you know, the worst, one of the worst moments of my life. I, I just... I went numb. I mean, I, I, I could hear that the doctor was saying what was, was giving me further, you know, instructions and insight, but 
none of it was really registering. I mean, he was just talking. But I'm looking at this screen, and clearly it is the image of a person's brain. And, and, and he's pointing to this area that maybe I see a shadow. I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of it. But in my mind, there's just a million things going through um, my thought process. And, and, and at first, it's that obviously there's been a mix-up. This, this cannot be you know, Brittany's this cannot be the scan of Brittany's brain. And there certainly isn't anything wrong with her brain. Um, so yeah, there, it was just one of those moments that kind of un, seemed to unfold in slow motion and fear, uh, anxiety, um, anger, all of these things are just rushing through me. And, and then we had a two hour ambulance ride from that hospital to a one to a, a hospital that's closer to our home so that they could do an MRI. So you guys left. We did. Yeah. Because that hospital in Healdsburg is so small, they don't have the equipment to do an MRI. So, um, we had a, a two hour ambulance ride to get to, um, John Muir medical center in Northern California so that they could do an MRI. Um, but you know, during that whole time, it's that entire night. We, we, we arrived at the, at John Muir at one in the morning. Um, they had Brittany pretty much sedated at that point, uh, because she just, you know, she was still throwing up from time to time. And so they had administered enough meds to keep her comfortable. And, and, um, they said, Dan, why don't you go home and try to sleep for a few hours tomorrow morning? We'll do an MRI. Um, and, you know, that's January 1st was the beginning of, of 10 months. Uh, Brittany died November 1st. And so for those 10 months, um, that was that day was the beginning of that that odyssey, which was um, just such a horrible um, that night, that New Year's Eve, that New Year's Day uh, was just such a blow to to Brittany and me and. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to think about. Uh, I can only imagine. Tell me a little bit about why Brittany wanted to become an activist for death, death with dignity. She, she did interviews and YouTube videos. Um, when did, when do you guys, when did you know, um, in this 10 month journey that you were looking at, at no escape, that, that this was going to be something that Brittany was not going to survive. So <clears throat> Brittany, un she underwent an eight hour brain surgery, uh, just 10 days later. So on January 10th at uh, UCSF medical center, we transferred yet to another facility. Um, she underwent brain surgery and that was to debulk was the term that they used. It was essentially to remove the amount of, um, uh, tumor material that they could safely get to in order for the current symptoms that she was suffering from in order for those to subside. Um, and that surgery, they were able to remove about 35% of the tumor. That's all. Um, there are of course portions of the brain that we cannot go into. Uh, the person will not wake up or they certainly will not be the same person if they do wake up. So, um, at that point, they told Brittany that she had three to five years to live. Unfortunately, just two months later at the first follow-up MRI, um, the tumor showed signs that it was growing aggressively, indicative of a GBM, a glioblastoma multiform. That's the most aggressive type of brain cancer. And at that point, they told Brittany that she had six months to live. Um, so it was... During that, that time, um, or, or just after where Brittany, you know, she had already, we'd already done a lot of research, but she, um, had come across Oregon's death with dignity, um, act that they had had for 20 years. Um, and so Brittany simply said, Dan, you know, if things get bad, we will move to Oregon. We, we will continue fighting, you know, battling and fighting against this, this cancer, but, if shit gets bad, we're moving to Oregon just so that I have the option 
of a gentle passing. Um, and so it was pretty much after the answer to your question, it was after that, that first follow-up MRI um, that we decided we would move to Oregon. Um, and, and the reason that she spoke up was just because she thought it was an injustice that we had to move. She didn't set out to be the face of this movement. That, that's, a, that's a term that the media gave to her. She, she just didn't want anyone else to have to leave their home like we did. Um, you know, after being told that six months of life is all you have left, um, you know, having to establish a new medical team, she had to find a house for us to rent on Craigslist. We packed up half of our house into a U-Haul truck in California, and then we drove 600 miles north to Portland, Oregon, so that she would have this option of a gentle passing. That's why she spoke up. That's why she said this, no one should have to endure this. Um, and the 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 interview that she gave for that for you know the making of that video that compassion and choices then hosted and then people magazine did the write-up on it it was october 6th of 2014 and all of a sudden you know 12 million views later britney everybody knew who britney menard was uh so it was very shocking or that it got that much attention um but britney spoke up for the reason i mentioned just because she thought this was an injustice that we had to leave and no one else should ever have to go through that. Why do you think 12 million people kind of woke up and was it her age? She was 29 years old. Was it death with dignity? Was it, you know, because death with dignity, which a lot of people call it things that like physician suicide, um, that is controversial. Why, why do you think she got so much attention from speaking out? Um. I think it did have to do with the items you mentioned, her age. She's 29 years old, this well-spoken individual that I think people could just relate to. It, you know, most of the times we talk about end of life and we think not a 29-year-old, but a 92-year-old, right? Turn those, flip those numbers around. And, and, and as far as that's concerned, Brittany was like, why did it take a 29-year-old to bring attention to this? You know, why why aren't we upset about it? Even if it if Brittany was a 92-year-old individual saying, "Hey, I should make sure I, I, I all of us, each of us should have the option of a gentle passing, regardless of what state you live in." But the answer to your question is, it was because they're looking at now uh, a young um, individual who's just advocating for herself. And I think people could relate to Brittany. People could relate to her. And, and in her, they see, wait, that could be, you know, my wife, my sister. Uh, that, that could be any one of us. Um, and, and real quick, since you mentioned that the term, um, the terminology, uh, physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia, um, these are terms that the opposition throws around quite a bit. Um, and and if I can, just just for a second, that please medical aid and dying is the appropriate terminology for this. Uh, for starters, it's it's neutral and, and it's the most accurate. It was that medication that aided Brittany in her dying process. Physician assisted suicide, even that conjures the notion of an individual, a, a doctor, a physician administering something to the person. Um, euthanasia also does not apply. Well, euthanasia is the act of a third party doing something to a person to hasten their death. Euthanasia is illegal in all 50 states. So the fact that that one is ever brought up or conflated with this, to me, is rather disturbing. This is not euthanasia. That's against the law, period. But regarding that term suicide, a person that is suicidal is a person who wants to die, or at least they think they want to die. Brittany wanted to live. So right away, we're talking about two completely different, you know, portions of the population. A person that is suicidal is a person that is depressed, despondent, making irrational decisions. Brittany was none of those things. Brittany received for, she applied 
applied for, qualified for, and was finally granted that prescription in May. If Brittany was suicidal, she would have taken it in May. Brittany died in November. So that term, um, which the opposition, they use it to great effect because the term suicide is a very loaded term. Um, it's one that people will use and, and, it, and it has about it uh, or floating around it this, this idea of, of shame, of that a person, they, they committed suicide because they were depressed. They were, you know, at their wits end. Um, when, when the opposition tries to conflate that into describing medical aid and dying, um, you know, to a terminally ill individual like Brittany, it's, it's insulting, really. Um, there was nothing about Brittany that wanted to die, but the brain tumor was ending her life. And of that, we had no control. But the one thing that Brittany could control was the manner in which her final few days might play out. And that's what medical aid and dying affords that individual. In Oregon, this has been a law for 20 years. More than a third of the individuals that um, qualify for and receive the medication, they 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 end up not using it. Those people had the medication, just like Brittany did, um, as a last resort. And and the hope is that you don't ever have to use the medication. The hope is that palliative care and hospice can keep a person comfortable. Um, you know, as her final few days are playing out. But in Brittany's case, the reality of that brain tumor is that it had clearly demonstrated that her dying process was not going to be easy. And, you know, literally that tumor was torturing her to death. Um, and so, you know, for her, utilizing uh, that medication was the way to avoid that needless suffering that was coming her way. Well, I appreciate you clarifying that because there are so many things that, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And, and people assume certain things. I, I was at working at a hospice when this was occurring to you and your wife and, and your family. And a lot of people, even within the hospice industry, was like, why not hospice? Why not palliative? And I, I simply... To me, I remember so clearly talking to a few individuals, and I just said, I think she's the probably one of the bravest people I probably will never meet, because it's about choice, and no one should tell us how to die, it's, especially with a chronic, and we're talking chronic and seriously ill patients. We're not talking, hey, it's a Tuesday, I don't feel like living anymore, just like you said. And I, I just... I, I don't think a lot of people realize that she tapped into hospice and palliative care. Oh, oh no. The, the palliative care team that she had at, at by then we were at o, Oregon Health and Science University, the palliative care team that she had at OHSU was incredible. And the, the, the care and the support that we received from the, the hospice um, um, physicians to us, that was, you know, the value of that was immeasurable. So, but, but, but here's the thing, hospice and palliative care in most cases will be able to keep a person comfortable at their end of life, uh, good palliative care that is. Um, and, and improvements are being made on that every day, but there are certain cases, and Brittany's was one of those, where modern medicine cannot keep that person from suffering. Do we abandon those individuals? Do we, you know, and that's where Brittany simply was advocating for herself and saying, no, we will continue to fight this cancer, but I want to make sure that, you know, she wanted to make sure that her dying process was not going to be um, the way that it had been described to us. And, and she was already suffering through a lot of those symptoms, um, you know, pain that not even morphine could alleviate. Let me ask you this. Through the whole process where Brittany was making the choice to move to Oregon, or actually you guys were making the choice to move to Oregon um, to enact um, and take part of this um, death or medical aid and dying, was she aware when she went public that she was having an, 
an effect on end of life and possibly changing how people were going to face their own end of life one day? Um, so once that first story or that first week, and I think I mentioned it was October 6th, once that got as much attention as it did, then, uh, yes, Brittany recognized it. Um, you know, her, her voice, her story was having an impact on, um, people's thinking of, of end of life options. We received hundreds of letters, um, to the house and emails and people reaching out to her and me. So Brittany was indeed aware that, um, the impact that her, her story was, was having on this conversation. Yeah. So you kept a promise to your wife. Um, you wanted, she wanted to see this passed in California. So no one would have to move from her home state to another state to enact medical aid and dying death with dignity. What was it like for that to come to fruition, um, to fulfill that promise to your wife? The governor of California signed the bill, uh, October 5th of 2015. So that's when it became law. Um, and that day I just felt an enormous sense, an enormous sense of pride really for, for what Brittany had started, um, and the impact that she did have. I just look at her and she was beautiful. And of course, I never met her. I mean, but I could, I look like I could just feel the energy, the goodness in her soul. I mean, that she, she must have had a, a wonderful personality. Oh, yeah. Brittany was a force of nature. She was, she was fun and happy and, and a smart ass. And, and she was determined <laughs> and caring and loving and, um, yeah, all of those things describe her. She just, she, she soared and I was very lucky to have her in my life. We were together for seven and a half years in total. And we were married for the last two of those years. Why do you think the subject of medical aid and dying is so controversial? Why do you think it, why do you think people feel like they should have a right to tell other people how to face end of life? Well, so luckily with 70% of the population of the United States in agreement with Brittany, 70% of the people in this country agree that a terminally ill individual should have the option of medical aid and dying. So um, I know that as I continue fighting for this in other states, I am in good company. But as far as those that are opposed, I would say that, you know, the, well, it's less than 30% that are opposed because there's a few that are in the um, undecided category. But for those that are opposed, it comes down to basically two camps. The first I would say is that they just have a misunderstanding about the program, about who qualifies. And, and just to clarify that, two physicians independent of one another have to agree that this person is terminally ill and that they have six months or less to live. That person has to be mentally competent. They have to make the request both verbally and in writing. There's a 15 day waiting period in between those requests. There are witnesses involved. All of those safeguards exist to protect that individual. And, and Brittany felt extremely protected going through that process. The biggest safeguard is that the individual has to be able to self-administer. Brittany had to be able to consume that medication on her own. Um, the medication, by the way, just to demystify that, cecobarbital is the name of it. It's, it's a sleeping medicine. It's been around for more than 80 years. Um, it, it, there's a hundred capsules and, and it has to be prepared, the, the powder, and, and it's mixed with four to five ounces of water. So Brittany has to be able to consume that medication on her own. So I think what you mentioned is why is this so controversial is that people just don't, uh, there's a misunderstanding about, um, you know, those are the parameters of this program. And, and by the way, just as an aside, in Oregon, I mentioned it, it's, it's been a law for 20 years. 
in the past 20 years, 0.3%, that's the, that's the number, it's a fraction of a percent, that's the number of individuals that have had to utilize or ended up utilizing medical aid in dying. So we're talking about a very narrowly focused program that, you know, the vast majority of us will never be faced with applying for or, or even, you know, making these decisions. But when I shed some light and, and, and share all of that, I think then people recognize, okay, so <laughs> these are for individuals that are in Brittany's predicament where hospice and palliative care might not be enough and they have taken this control back from their brain tumor or cancer, whatever their ailment is, just as a backup. When I explain it, I think then people start recognizing and all of a sudden it became, becomes less controversial. The second part of that I was going to say, um, the opposition to it, is basically from religious organizations. Uh, the Catholic Church is the biggest opponent of this. And I know that I, um, um, I frustrate them because I grew up Catholic. I was, a, I was an altar boy. I went to Catholic school. Um, Bishop John Cummings of the Oakland Diocese presented me with the Adaltari Day Award. That's an award for service in your Catholic community. So I am very well aware of the doctrine of the church. But the interesting part is that even though the leadership of the church has a, an opinion on medical aid and dying, they're opposed to it. In California, as we we're moving this legislation forward, 60% of Catholics are also supportive of medical aid. Um, so while the leadership might have their own opinions on it, um, the congregation, the people that I go to church with, they all agree with Brittany. They say, look, I don't know if I'd use the medication, but I certainly want to know that I have that option. That is not up to a government institution or, or a religious body. Um, so that's, I think, where the controversy comes from is um, you know, either a misunderstanding or because of of, you know, religion meddling into this. Well, do you think the baby boomers are helping you? Because they're all about choice. Is this their way of supporting um, choice at the end of life? Or what is your opinion on that? I do think that the baby boomer generation um, will not tolerate um, not having <laughs> all options available Um We've now passed this legislation in six states. It's uh, Oregon, Washington, Vermont, Montana. Uh, California was the fifth. Colorado just passed. Actually, D.C., the District of Columbia, uh, is the seventh jurisdiction. Um, the law has been introduced in 25 other states. So I do think that it is just a matter of time for people to have the appropriate understanding of this legislation uh, and that uh, that the baby boomer generation will be um, <laughs> will be vocal and and um, as uh, they're facing end of life and having conversations about advanced healthcare directives and everything else we should be doing as it applies to, you know, end of life decisions that we have to make. Um, I think they'll want to know that, Hey, wait a minute. I shouldn't have to be in one of those six different States, or if you include DC seven in order to know that I have this option of a gentle passing, if it's to become necessary for me. So, um, I think uh, I think that will be beneficial to us, uh, to you know my efforts in moving this forward in other states. Well, and and to repeat something you said earlier, only a third of individuals, you know, use the prescription out of everyone who's fulfilled it. It's 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 taking that 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 power over something that you have no control over. So even a large majority of people who are getting this prescription filled never use it. It's about choice and it's about control. And and I just wanted to repeat that to, to make sure that everyone is aware that very few individuals are implementing this process to the, the length that they could. Right. So in Oregon last year, just to use some numbers, 
35,000, the state of Oregon has a population of 3.5 million people. Last year, uh, there were 35,000 deaths in the state of Oregon. Um, the number of individuals that utilized medical aid in dying ended up being 133. So again, that, that's where that number 0.3% comes from. It, it's a fraction of a percent of the people who actually utilize it. And of those people that are utilized, uh, and of those people that receive it, uh, the medication, I think it was 200 and something prescriptions that were, that were granted, uh, those 133, that's where fully more than a third, they don't end up utilizing the medication. Um, they end up dying of their underlying illness. Um, and, and they simply had this as, as, um, as an option. Um, and that sense of relief that it provides them um, is huge when you're facing death. Well, and the reason you know so much about this is because now you are carrying Brittany's legacy forward. You are now very much involved with Compassion and Choices, being their spokesperson and going to states to help this movement continue so everyone in the United States will have this option. So tell me a little bit about your experience becoming a spokesperson. Uh, well, both Brittany and I actually introverts. So on that Myers-Briggs test, when you take that, I'm an ISTJ, that first part being introvert, that, that I, and so it comes naturally to you. Yeah, no, it's a little (laughs) out of my comfort zone. I I don't. And Brittany said the same thing. I mean, neither one of us cared to be interviewing for a magazine or, or on film or anything, or, you know, being recorded, but she knew that it's what needed it's what needed to be done in order to bring attention to this. So um, as far as my advocacy, yes, uh, to keep the promise that I made to Brittany um, this in the past two years, I have been to 12 different state capitals and I've talked, I've testified at Senate hearings and I've shared the reality of of what medical aid and dying is, and I share Brittany's story. Um, and I think when they hear it, they they then understand what we're really talking about. It helps dispel all of the the silly hypotheticals and and the false narratives that that the opposition likes to bring up. Um, and we already talked about some of that. They'll use terms intentionally, like suicide. They use that because they're trying to invoke fear. Um, they'll use terms like euthanasia. They'll, they'll talk about, oh, this is a slippery slope. They'll say that insurance is going to stop paying for treatments and instead they're just going to offer this coverage. So they'll say all these fantastic tales, whereas when I talk with the senators, I provide the firsthand account where I can refute item by item, categorically, each and every one of those things. No, this is not a slippery slope. The law that was enacted in Oregon 20 years ago is the same law, and those parameters are still there. You do not qualify for this program simply because you are old. You do not qualify for this program because you are disabled. Those are not qualifying factors. You have to be terminally ill with six months or less to live. There is no slippery slope occurring here. Um, and as far as the insurance industry is concerned, um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not <laughs> defending <laughs> um, their, uh, their behaviors at times uh, as it pertains to uh, – because I lived it. You know, We would submit a claim and they'd send it back and then I'd have to send it to them and say, no, you, this, you didn't code it properly and get this over to – the the administrator from you know the physician's office and they code it and now put it through and so all that exists however there has not been a single case of the the abuses that uh, the opposition tries to to bring up uh, I, I take that back they will cite a whole bunch of examples but none of them have anything to do actually with medical aid and dying um, and so they'll they attempt to their attempt to muddy the waters to make it seem like there's some sort of nefarious activity going on. And my response is that they say that sunlight is the best disinfectant. 
bringing this conversation so that we, we can talk about this, bringing it to the light of day. Um, as soon as Brittany had this conversation with her doctor, it was clear to, to her physician, to her family, to everyone that she was the one in control of how her end of life would play out. In the absence of this legislation, that's where I would say that we run the risk of there being abuses. Because let's not kid ourselves, and, I, and, and, and I've heard, and I've had many physicians come up to me when I've testified at those different state houses, and they'll come up to me and you know, they'll say, Dan, thanks for being here, thanks for your, your, your testimony. And, and then they'll share that this type of stuff happens behind closed doors all the time. And it typically happens, and I'm, t- I'm not, I'm saying without, you know, medical aid and dying or a death with dignity law, this happens in states um, that does, that do not have a medical aid and dying legislation. And it typically happens with the administration of morphine. And because once a person is in hospice, of course, well, you know, you get your kit of, and, and depending on what the patient is suffering from, that might include liquid morphine. One drop of morphine on the tongue is five milligrams. If a person hasn't built up a tolerance to uh, morphine, it doesn't take that many drops to basically hasten a person's death. And I've had many physicians share with me that there have been times where they kind of question, was that person's death because of the ailments or was that an overanxious family member or somebody trying to keep their loved ones comfortable, um, you know, wink, wink, that's not. And ease suffering. Yeah, to ease suffering. And, and so it's moments like that where I then emphasize that this legislation, because it brings it to the light of day, and because Brittany is the one that is in complete control from the day that she decides to either apply for it or not to the day that she decides she needs to utilize it or not, Brittany is the one in control. Without this legislation, that's where I'd say that the abuses behind closed doors uh, can happen. Um, and, and when I share that um, with legislators, then um, especially if that legislator has had their own personal experience with a loved one that is dying um, or, or has died, um, they all of a sudden recognize, wait, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, there's... There's a lot of latitude given to the administration of some of those meds um, and um, because of the fact that that is happening by closed door, behind closed doors, the question is, was that what the patient wanted? A lot of left, a lot of questions not answered. But yeah, I, I, I yes, I, I have heard the very similar stories um, throughout my years and and it, it is. It's how do we bring this to the light of day? So there are no questions. People, the individual, the patients have that control and the decision-making process. You have you and Brittany are continuing your adventure through a film. Um, you are telling Brittany's story, and I should say your story as well through a movie. Um, where are you in the process of that? With that. Uh, so as far as the, the, the material, the script for the whole thing, that of course comes from me. So I've put, you know, I put pencil to paper and had come up with, it's about 400 pages, which is, uh, the Brittany, the Brittany Menard story. Um, and it's from, you know, the day that we met and, and everything that we went through and, you know, our, our wedding day, our honeymoon, vacations, everything. And then up until that day, January 1st, when we discovered the brain tumor and then the, um, those 10 months of, of battling that brain tumor. Um, and so at this point it's now working with, uh, the, well, I guess the individuals, the team that will take that and, Put it into the screenplay version, um, so as you know, that's the basis of the movie. Um, it's an interesting process. I've in 2014, Brittany and I got a crash course in medicine. Uh, it felt like, and um, we learned about you know stage two, grade two astrocytoma gliomas and GBMs and 
and um, the effectiveness of chemotherapy and radiation. And um, after Brittany died, then all of a sudden, I it seemed like I was getting a a crash course in how politics works, um, and that's where I've focused my last two years. Uh, and now all of a sudden, I'm being exposed to you know the media side, and and in particular how film. How a film comes together, and um, so it, you're right. It, it has been quite a strange journey for me personally, and um, but that's how I honor Brittany's legacy and keep my promise to her. Absolutely. As Brittany's husband, um, how do you remember her? That that fun and happy person that uh, I, I kind of describe that some of the adjectives that jump into my mind all the time is no, just this happy person that was a smart as and would you know always looking to stir things up with me and, and just a fun individual who had just this, this, this drive about her. Um, Brittany truly was in my eyes, just a person who soared. Um, I think that's why we worked well together because I was the dependable one. I was the stable one. I was kind of her, um, her landing pad. Um, but you know, for her, she, she just soared. She, she always dreamt big and her adventures were large. She, she climbed Kilimanjaro. She, um, she, she summited Cotopaxi. She was, she worked for six months in an orphanage in, in Nepal. Um, you know, her sense of adventure, her spirit, uh, it was just something that, uh, you know, I admired so much, of course, found her attractive in every way possible. Um, and those are the moments that I carry in my heart. You know, I think about our wedding day, our honeymoon, and those things make me smile. Um, the fact that she had to endure those last 10 months and her life was ended at age 29. So, you know, unfairly, those then there's a lot of other emotions that come up. I, you know, I'm angry about that. Um, I'm mad at the universe for the fact that that happened to her of all people. Um, but, you know, I, I try to focus on, on the positive, on, on the good. And, um, you know, you, you can't let that, you can't let the negative emotions overtake, um, I, I, I don't allow those to overtake me or, or my thought process. Um, when I think of Brittany, for me, that's a, that's always a positive thing. Well, she, yeah, she sounds like she she lived a life. Um, so many people, um, it, that's a life lesson that Brittany is teaching all of us is how to live to the fullest. Because um, death will come come to us all. Right. It's just the tragic thing at twenty nine that you you try to wrap your mind around, and and I I've never found the answer to that. Right. Yeah. So how do people join you and Brittany on moving this death with dignity, this medical aid and dying movement forward? How can people how can people help if they're interested in learning more information? Because I think that's a, a, a big key of of if you know what you're talking about, because the, there's a misconception out there. Um, but what are other ways that people can and help you and the cause of moving this forward? Uh, the, the best way, of course, is to get in touch with your legislators. Uh, legislatively, is, is this is a state-by-state state fight. Uh, this is not a federal issue. Um, so um, they can go to the Compassion and Choices website, compassionandchoices.org, or they can also go to thebrittanyfund.org. Uh, the BrittanyFund.org, um, it, it will link to CNC's website. Um, but there's, there's a, there's a button there that says get involved and it will provide, uh, anyone who goes to that website, it'll provide them by putting in their, you know, zip code. It'll say, here's who your elected representatives are and here's how to get in touch with them. Um, the thing is there are certain states that we don't have, even though a bill may have been introduced, the chances of moving it through that given state legislature may not, you know, it's going to take some time just depending on the, the makeup 
of that uh, legislative body. Um, we have to have, you know, support of the, the, the Senate leadership, the House leadership or the assembly leadership. Um, certain committees have to be, you know, favorable to even hearing um, the, uh, the, the testimony on this. Um, but with that said, Compassion Choices website would be the place to go. Um, and as far as getting involved, um, the uh, website uh, will have the details on how a person um, can, can help in, in my efforts to honor Brittany. Well, I will say she is and was a very lucky woman to have you as a husband taking her fight and continuing to make this movement, which, which she had every right to make that choice at her end of life. You, you're doing extraordinary things. And so many of us wonder when we get to our end of life, will we have a legacy? Well, I believe Brittany does have a legacy through everything that you're doing. And I just applaud you. And if there's anything that I can do to support you. But I also am very sad that the world um, only saw Brittany sick. Um, I, I see her as the way you describe her. And I think the world is a lesser place when we lose people like her in it. Um, but her legacy is strong. And I look forward to seeing this movie. And I look forward to seeing all 50 states um, enact and, and create laws when it comes to choice at end of life and, and having the right to choose medical aid and dying at one time. So, Dan, thank you so much for your time. Knowing that she had this option um, allowed her to live uh, and, and truly focus on, um, you know, making the most of those days, um, and, and not, you know, sitting around being terrified, wondering, okay, when do I suffer the next seizure that is going to put me in a condition where I'm unable to communicate? Um, if I suffer a stroke and I'm unable to, to, you know, walk, uh, stand or swallow, um, you know, when does that happen? And then I'm all of a sudden, stuck in my own body, having to die in the very way that she was trying to avoid. And I think that we can, to, you know, what is it, compassionandchoices.org to learn more about medical aid and dying, but also get involved with just creating more choices at end of life. Dan, I cannot express how grateful I am for your time today. Um, I really appreciate uh, your story and you becoming um, the face of your wife's legacy legacy and moving forward um, and, and fighting for every state to have the same choice that your wife did. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. <laughs>